All right. Good evening, everybody. Glad you guys are here. Hey, quick show of hands. How many of you think um, that I don't cover enough information during a typical message and you, you wish that I would cover more? Okay, we have, we have two, maybe. All right, you two are going to be sad. I was going to cover tonight, the plan was for me to cover Paul's second missionary journey and Paul's third missionary journey, both tonight, and then conclude the series in Acts next week. Um, as I was going through this, the Lord was just showing me so many things. There was just no way I could reasonably make that happen without really just giving shortcuts to, to a lot of things that I think the Spirit really can move through. So I felt led to just break it in half, and so that's what we're going to do. So tonight, we are going to focus on Paul's second missionary journey. If you remember, we're, obviously, we're going through Acts. Last week, we talked about the Jerusalem Council. Remember that? And the Jerusalem Council was specifically called to get all the apostles, all the church leaders, the elders, and everybody together to make sure they're on the same page. This Christianity thing is blowing up. It's spreading all over the world as Jesus commanded them to do. It's happening now, and it's spreading throughout the whole world. And they're starting to be little pockets where they're on just a slightly different page. Different towns, different teachers are on a little different page. So they called the Jerusalem Council to get everybody together in the same room at the same time and come to an agreement on this is what we're going to talk about. This is what we're going to teach as we go forward. So that was last week. And as we see in human nature, as Paul gets ready to travel out on his second missionary journey, how quickly we slip back into some of our old ways. But Paul does amazing things. And there is, again, there is so much in this material that I'm covering tonight that I want, you to, I, I want you to hear this, but more than just what I say, I want you to just ask the Lord as we go through this, what does this mean to me? What does this mean to me? What do you want me to do with this? Because I'll tell you, as I go through, the, over, the, the overwhelming response in my heart is two things. Number one, it's because God doesn't choose you despite who you are. God doesn't choose you and call you to do things in his kingdom despite who you are and all your flaws. He calls you because of who you are. He calls you because of who you are. And it's those unique traits in your character that make you you that God uses to determine, I'm sending this person into this situation. And the Holy Spirit will fill in the rest. Anything we lack, the Holy Spirit will fill that in. But God calls us to situations, to opportunities, uniquely because of who you are. Again, not in spite of it. So I want you to look for those ideas as we go through this, and we'll revisit those at the end. But I just want to just take a second and just pray for that revelation. So if you just, just receive this. Father God, I just pray that you open all of our hearts and minds to what you want us to know. Not the words that come out of my mouth, but God, the words that you want us to know. Let those just find a place in our heart where they can just dig in and reside so that we can know that they are truth, that we can walk out in those things just confident of what you have called us to do and who we are in your kingdom. Father, let this not just be a whole bunch of information, but let it just be a resounding call to action in your kingdom. Father, that's what we want, and we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs> All right. So if you remember last week, last week we ended up 
with Acts 15.35. I'll just, I'm going to read a lot of these to you because I have a lot of scriptures tonight. So I'm going to read a lot of them to you. So just listen when I'm reading to you. Every now and then we'll put some up on the screen because they have specific things I want to point out. But here's where we ended up last week, Acts 15.35. It says, but Paul and Barnabas stayed in Antioch. Okay, this is after the Jerusalem council. They go up to Antioch, and they go basically back home, right? They stayed in Antioch, preaching and teaching with many others also the word of the Lord. Okay, so they go back up there. They're preaching, teaching. Everything is fantastic, going really well. Now, they're up there for about a year. And about a year later, there starts to be a little bit of trouble in paradise, if you will. Starts to be a little bit of of turmoil. So this is where we catch up right here. A year later, we start out in the section we're going to be teaching on tonight, Acts 15, 36, the very next verse. It says, after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brethren in every city which we have proclaimed the word of the Lord and see how they are. Okay, he's just saying, hey, Barnabas, you and I, last year, we went out and we did that journey. Remember, let's go back, revisit those churches and see how they're doing. So the question is, if they've gone back to Antioch and they're preaching, teaching there, and people are receiving the word and things are going well, why did they choose now to go back out on the road? There's always a reason behind these things. And if we look at it, I think the next verse kind of gives us a clue. And it's an interesting verse. So I put this one up on screen. This is Acts 15, 37 to 39. Barnabas wanted to take John called Mark. Remember John Mark, same guy, John Mark. Mark is the one that writ the God, writ, he writ it. It's part of that hootenanny attitude. He writ the gospel of Mark. That's good. But Paul kept insisting that they should not take him along who had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. Remember they had that split and, and John Mark, didn't want to go any further. He turned around and came back home. And there occurred such a sharp disagreement between Paul and Barnabas that they separated from one another. And Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. Remember, Mark was a, was a relative of Barnabas. So they get together, they go to Cyprus. Paul then chooses Silas, another Roman citizen. Okay, He's a Jewish Roman citizen, so just like Paul. And they decide that they're going to go out together. Now here's why this is significant. First of all, it's interesting that they have such a disagreement over this, that Paul's being kind of stubborn, if you will, on this, saying, ah, you want to take him? I, I don't want, he already ditched us once. I don't want to bring him again. Kind of seems like a stubborn sort of a move, right? But there's something behind that. First of all, it is kind of a stubborn move, but that's part of Paul's nature. Paul is, is very, he's zealous, Remember back when he was Saul, he was so zealous for what he believed to be the truth. I mean, he put 100% of his heart and soul into everything that he did. At that point, it was persecuting Christians. But then when he became to understand, he had the meeting with Jesus, and he became to really understand the truth. Now, he is 100% all in, all totally zealous for the Lord Jesus and for his teaching. So he's, he's got no gray area. This isn't a gray area kind of guy. And here's what's been happening. If you want more details on this, you can read Galatians. Galatians uh, chapter 2. Uh, it's around 10 to 14, something like that. It details this a little bit more. But here's what happens. First of all, you have to remember that as Paul travels on these missionary journeys, 1, 2, and 3, that we'll talk about next week, his other epistles are being written at this time. So Galatians, Ephesians, 
Colossians, Corinthians. These are all being written while he's on these journeys. So the things that he's writing about are things that he's, in some cases, witnessing firsthand and seeing this happen. And he goes, I, I need to write a letter to them, make sure that they're solid. And so that's where some of these epistles come from. But this is all happening about the same time. So if you read in Galatians, again, chapter 2, 11, 13, you see this account of this. And here's what's happening. Peter and Barnabas are sent by James to come up to Antioch, basically, and visit, visit Paul again. And they go up there, and at first, Peter starts doing what they're supposed to do, and he's mixing with the Gentiles. He's mixing with the Jews. He's mixing with the Gentiles. He's, he's basically including everyone, which is what he's supposed to do. And then Barnabas shows up, and then some other elders show up, and all of a sudden, then Peter starts to shrink back. It starts to revert kind of back to his old Jewish ways and says, we, we, shouldn't, we can mix with them, but we shouldn't really openly mix with them. Okay, he doesn't say this out loud, but his actions indicate that. He's invited to stay with somebody at their house, and he says, I'm going I'm to stay over here instead. Paul sees this, and Paul rips him a new one. Okay, excuse my alluded to French. But Paul rips into him and says, who are you? What are you doing? Did you not, were you not at the same meetings I was where we just talked about we weren't going to make this happen? And now you're going back into those old ways? What are you doing? And in fact, it was Barnabas, again, who was with Peter. And Barnabas was doing the same thing too. So when you see that Paul says, you know what? Barnabas, you go on your own way. I'm going to take Silas and we're going to go on our separate trip. One of the reasons for that is that he starts to see that Barnabas is starting to kind of maybe be swayed a little bit by Peter in the old ways. Again, he, he's not that rock-solid guy that he wants with him as he goes out specifically to talk about what they had just decided at the Jerusalem Council. It's like, we just talked about this, and you're already backsliding. It's only been a year. You're already sliding back on that, so I'm going to take Silas, and we're going to go out and we're going to do this. I'd imagine that Silas is the same. The, the word says that he was a prophet. He had the gift of prophecy. But I would guess that he was probably just as zealous as Paul. And Paul kind of felt a kindred spirit. and Like, let's go do this thing and make sure this is being taught the right way. It's important to make sure it goes. So that's where they go. Paul and Silas, they head out. Now, this time they go by land. If you remember last time, they went to Cyprus first by boat. And then they go up and around. This time he decides he's going to head back the other way by land. And so when they head back the other direction, they end up going to, uh, to Cyprus first. It's about 3,000 miles is what this total journey turns out to be. Let's take a look at the map really quick. Ooh, I apologize. It's the same map I had last time. Well, not the same, but the same resolution, I thought. I'll fix that for tomorrow. Anyway, so I apologize. But here's where they start out. Okay, this is Jerusalem they go up here to Antioch. Actually, Antioch is where they start. Apologize. This is where they end up. They start out in Antioch. They travel this direction. Okay. They travel into Derby and Lystra and on up around the top horn of Asia there and end up on the other side. So I'll kind of, we'll go back to that just a couple times because you can kind of roughly see where they are. But this is what they're doing. So as they're doing this, they come to their first stop. Their first stop is in Derby. Remember, Derby was their last stop last time, and they turned around and went back the way they came. This time, it's their first stop. And when they get to Derby, 
Here's what happens. I'll read this to you. This is Acts 16, verse 1. Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra, and a disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was Greek. Okay, Timothy, you may or may not remember, way back on his first journey when Paul was stoned and drug outside the city and left for dead, Timothy was one of those who witnessed that. So Timothy saw He knew who Paul was, and he saw the power of the gospel, and he wanted to be a part of this. And he had spent this time as a believer learning and kind of growing, and Paul recognized this. Paul sees this, but here's the next thing that happens is really curious. If you just do a quick read through the word, you'll see this, and you'll go, that does not make sense. This is verse, uh, Acts 16, verse 3. So read this. Now remember the reason Paul's even out here to begin with is to relay what the Jerusalem council had decided you did not have to do. Paul wanted this man to go with him and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those parts for they all knew that his father was a Greek. So Paul goes out on this journey specifically to say you don't have to do all these things including circumcision. He comes across Timothy, and the first thing he does is say, you're going to have to get circumcised. Does that make sense? It really doesn't make sense. So we look at why. If you remember when we looked at the Jerusalem Council last week, we talked about some of the things that they left in their decrees and some of the things they took out. They left in some of the things like dietary restrictions against blood and things like that. They did that to kind of placate the Jews or as a as a neutral ground for the Jews who were there who were still using sacrifice and things as part of their ritual. And they didn't see the need to needlessly aggravate those people. So they went ahead and included them. Here's what's interesting about this is that it specifically says that Timothy, his dad was a Greek and his mom was a Jew. Back in that culture, your Jewishness, for lack of a better term, followed through your mother's line, not through your father's line. But Timothy, for some reason, had never been circumcised, probably because his dad was a Greek, and it doesn't say he was a believer, so by that we infer that he was not a believer. So I'm sure the father said, a son of mine's going to get circumcised just for something you believe. We're not going to do that. So he was never circumcised. The problem is that if he came alongside Paul and they went out to spread the gospel, remember, to the Jews and to the Gentiles, at this point he's spreading it to anybody who will listen, okay? That would have been a problem. The Jews would have seen that as a rejection of his culture, as a rejection of his heritage, or as a rejection of all the law. And that would have been a stumbling block for them to listen to what Timothy had to say. So this is why. It's not a matter of the law says you have to do this. In fact, the law clearly said that you didn't. But this would have been an issue. It would be like somebody coming up and saying, hey, good news, the rules have changed. I don't have to do that thing I don't want to do. Okay, it wouldn't have carried as much weight as having, he goes ahead and does it so that he can fit into their culture. Okay, remember we hear all the time that Paul wants to be all things to all men. We've heard that in scripture before, right? This is an example of that. Timothy goes ahead and he takes one for the team and he is circumcised to go on with Paul to remove any potential stumbling blocks to them saying, who are you to talk to us? You're not, you say you're a Jew, but you've clearly rejected it. So he's trying to just remove that. That's where we are with this. So 
we make sure, uh, he makes sure that Timothy is, is uh, circumcised and they go out. Okay, so they spend time there telling about the church, about the new decrees that Jerusalem council had come across, really solidifying that. Scripture says they strengthen and they grow and they encourage these churches. Okay, they're starting to, to really, really get strong. So then they decide, um, we don't have to show the map again, but they decide that they're going to go up, actually do show the map really quick. You don't have to read the words on it, but again, they're right here in this, in this town here. And Paul heads straight up towards northern Asia, this place called Bithynia, up in that region. And his, his plan is to head straight on up there into the Black Sea region and preach up there. But before he gets there, the Holy Spirit, the, the, the word says, the Holy Spirit prohibits him or forbids him for going up there. So very clearly speaking to him, saying, I, I don't want you to go up there. And that's in Acts 16.6. 6. I'll read that to you. They passed through the Phrygian and Galatian region. So that area up there in the green, that's all Galatia. Travels through that region, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And after they came to Mysia, they were trying to go into Bithynia. Again, that's, that's up where that kind of yellowish is up on top. And the Spirit of Jesus did not permit them. And passing through Mysia, they came down to Troas. A couple of interesting things about that. Troas is, if you look in the orange Asia right there, Troas is the farthest to the left point right there, right on the coast, the last little town there. Here's another interesting thing. In this same section here, um, in the same, same verse, Acts 16, 6, it talks about the Holy Spirit, but then it also talks about the Spirit of Jesus. Okay, What that illustrates to you, if you remember... Last week, if you were here last week and I talked about the council, I also talked about some of the other councils that were out there in the hundreds of years that followed this. They had to meet several times just to discuss and, again, make sure they're on the same page about these things and they have a good understanding. This clearly indicates that there was not at that point a true, really rock-solid understanding of the Trinity, the Father, Son, Holy Spirit being separate and yet one entity. That's a hard concept for us to get our minds around, right? They were having a hard time with it then too. So at one, in one word they say the Holy Spirit, and in the next word they say the Spirit of Jesus. Same thing or just different understandings of the same. And it's not theologically important, but it just illustrates why they had to have these councils over the years to get together just to make sure we have the same understanding on what the Trinity is and, and what salvation is and things like this. Let's just make sure we're doing this right. So that's what they're doing. So another thing about Troas is Luke joins them there. Luke joins them. We don't know where he was necessarily all this time, but he joins them right up in Troas. And the way that you know that is if you listen to the next verse, uh, we've got this on screen. It's Acts 16, 9 to 10. You'll notice a shift between Luke. Again, Luke's writing Acts, right? And instead of saying they did this, they did this, Paul did this, now all of a sudden it's we. Okay, because Luke joins him there. A vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing and appealing to him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. When he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So this is two times in a very short period where Paul allowed the Lord to change his plans radically from what he had planned. 
So many times we have plans and we say, no, but that's what I had planned. So I'm going to do that and hope God meets me there. But Paul is just the opposite. Paul is saying, Lord, speak to me. I will go where you call me. And he's willing over and over. This is a 3,000 mile journey. He wasn't in a car. He wasn't taking the train. He wasn't flying. He was on horseback or he was walking most of the time. That's a major journey to go all the way up right to the border of where you thought you were going and then take a left because the Holy Spirit tells you not to. But what happened out of this is that they go, they get this vision from the man from Macedonia and they say yes to it. And they immediately jump on a ship in Troas and they head over to the European continent. So what came out of that was that Paul was thinking a little small. He's like, hey, I want to really scour this continent, make sure every little town, make sure I've talked to every little town. And the Holy Spirit is saying, this needs to happen faster than this. I want you to go to a whole other continent and spread it over there, and I'll take care of the rest. But thankfully, Paul is, is very, very obedient to that, and he just goes. So Paul goes across the ocean. Show me the map again, just really fast. He goes across the ocean. Bounces across a couple little islands there, but ends up clearing the top, Macedonia, up in that top corner. You see where it's kind of orangish up there, or yellowish, Macedonia. That's where he goes, and that's Philippi. He actually lands, travels across land just a short distance, and that very next town there is Philippi. So, letter to the Philippians, that's where he's going. He ends up in Philippi, and as he gets there, this is what happens. I'll read it to you, Acts 16, 13. And on the Sabbath day... They went outside to the gate, to a riverside, outside the gate to a riverside, where we were supposing that there would be a place of prayer. And we sat down and began speaking to the women who had assembled. Okay, a couple interesting things there. If you remember, I talked to you about, about Paul's custom, his habit. When he went into a town, he would immediately find the synagogue. He would go to the synagogue, and he would preach to the Jews first. And then he would go out and he would preach to the Gentiles so that the Jews didn't think that this was some, uh, you already gave it to them first, we don't want it anymore. Okay, that's what they did out of stubbornness. So we get it first or nobody gets it or it's not worth anything, it's tainted. But in this case, he goes to Philippi. The word hadn't really spread either word too much up in Philippi. And what this indicates is there weren't enough people in this town to even have a synagogue. I don't mean people. It was a big town. It was a bustling town. There weren't enough believers to even have a synagogue. Okay, by Jewish law, there has to be 10 believing, 10 believing men in order to have a synagogue. Well, they didn't reach that number. So what happens then, their custom then would be to find the nearest body of water, whether it was a river or a lake or the ocean. And as close as you could get, that nearest point, that's where the believers, however many there were, would gather on the Sabbath, and they would, they would talk to each other and share the word and things like that. So Paul goes there. He knows there's not a synagogue in town. I'm going there because I'll probably find some believers there. And he's exactly right. That's what happens. He goes there, and what happens there is really cool. This is where the first convert on the entire continent of Europe happens. Show me that next scripture there. Acts 16, 14, 15. A woman named Lydia... From the city of Thyatira, who, which was very close there, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, was listening. And the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. And when she and her husband had been baptized, she urged us, 
saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us, meaning she won that argument. They ended up staying at her house. A seller of purple fabrics in that time, purple fabrics was a color of royalty and wealth. So if you sold purple fabrics in a town like Philippi on the coast, a big city, you're probably really, really well-to-do. Okay, so she's a really well-to-do woman, and she calls them into her house. There's probably plenty of room for them all to stay. Okay, and that's why they end up here. So it's, again, seems like, seems like things are going pretty well. What happens when things are going pretty well? What happens when things are going pretty well for an evangelist like Paul is that you become a big spot on the devil's radar, and the devil has a problem with you. And he starts throwing things at you. Sometimes it's the Jews that come from the next town to throw a fit over what you're doing. Sometimes it's the devil himself. And that's what we see right here. So Acts 16, 16 to 18. Again, they're still in that place. It happened that as we were going to the place of prayer, they're going down to the river, a slave girl having a spirit of divination met us who was bringing her masters much profit by fortune telling. Following after Paul and us, she kept crying out, saying, These men are bondservants of the Most High God, who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. She continued doing this for many days, but Paul was greatly annoyed and turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out of her at that very moment. So let's think about this really quick. First of all, Slave girls, it was very, very common. These slave girls would, would have, they would be demonized, okay? They would open their spirit up to demons. Demons would inhabit them. This one had a spirit of divination, a demonic spirit of divination. And she had masters who would use this, okay, to make money. They would send her out and say, go, go do fortune telling in the square and bring us back the money that you make. Okay, that's what she was doing. Now, it seems curious that she walked up behind them and starts proclaiming that, hey, these guys are bondservants of Jesus and they're they're preaching to you the truth. Why would she do that if she had a demon spirit? Because demons are smart. Demons are crafty. Okay, they're not this stupid, mindless thing. Make no mistake, demons are smart. And in this case, what they thought was, hey, we'll come up and we'll stand right alongside Paul with his apostolic authority, and we'll stand right there and say, yeah, we're, to, we're in this together. Aren't these good guys? Thereby giving her authority. Thereby making her somebody who is perceived as carrying the truth. Okay, It was supposed to enhance her, her status and her place. That's what's supposed to happen. But what happens? Paul lets this happen for many days and finally just gets fed up with it. Again, this is where the Holy Spirit uses Paul because of who he is. He gets fed up with it, and he turns to her and says, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ, come out of her. And that demon spirit comes out. This is one of the verses that I use when I teach about the authority of us over the demonic. Jesus gave us authority over the demonic. There is nothing that the devil can do to you. There is nothing a demon can't do to you that you cannot simply reject in the name of Jesus. It's not your power, it's Jesus' power, but we have that authority through Christ. Remember that, that's important. So anyway, it doesn't end there is the problem. It doesn't end right there with the demon coming out and she goes home and everybody lives happily ever after. What happens is that her masters see their source of income drying up. 
And they have a problem with that. They have a problem with that. So what they do is that they go, there must have been some very influential businessmen in that area, they go to the chief magistrate and they trump up these charges against Paul and Silas. And they say, hey, these guys are interfering with our livelihood. They're spreading lies. They're doing whatever it is that they accuse them of. And the magistrate yanks them off of the street and actually has them beaten. Which, by the way, is illegal. Paul's a Roman citizen. Silas is a Roman citizen. The magistrate is a Roman magistrate, the only one who's allowed to dispense justice of any kind. But there was no trial. There was no formal examination of charges. It wasn't just the Wild West there, believe it or not. They had things that they had to do. But Paul and Silas never told them that they were Roman citizens. They didn't know that. But even with that, they're not supposed to just drag them off the street and jail them. So they do this. They take them in. The scripture says that they put them, the, the magistrate says he must have known who these guys were, or at least had heard of them. He says, put them in the inner cell. So it was a ring of cells. And they put them in the inner cell and put them in stocks. You didn't do this for just anybody. Put them in the inner cell to make it extra hard for them to escape and put them in stocks. Stocks, the big thing. In this case, it was around their feet, but they're not going anywhere with these stocks, right? At least you don't think they're going anywhere. Very next scripture, Acts 16, 25 to 30. I'll read this one. It's a little long, so just listen to what's happening here. But about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God. They're in stocks in the jail, and they've been beaten, okay? And they're singing hymns of praise. And the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly... There came a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison house were shaken. And immediately, all the doors were opened, and everyone's chains were unfastened. Everyone's chains were unfastened. When the jailer awoke, jailer must have been sleeping. When the jailer awoke and saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that they had escaped. Remember, in that culture, if you were a guard and you let your prisoners escape, the penalty for that is, is death, and a painful death. They would either crucify you or kill you in a horrible way. So he was just going to end it right there. They escaped somehow. I'm going to end it. But this is what it says. But Paul cried out with a loud voice saying, Do not harm yourself, for we're all here. And he called for lights, he meaning the jailer, called for lights and rushed in, trembling with fear, and fell down before Paul and Silas. Can you imagine all the doors are open. You're about to kill yourself. And they're like, hey, come on in. We're all good. We're all still here. The jailer runs in, falls down before them. And then verse 30 says, after he brought them out, he said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? He sees the power there. Power in two ways. The power to break the chains and to throw open those prison doors. But what else? Supernatural peace that comes from knowing God's got this. Because what would we do? Chains are off, I'm out, boom. And you would run as fast as you could and get as far away from there as you can. Paul's like, no, we're not gonna do that because it'd be bad for him. And it's not his fault. Let's just hang out here. So this jailer says, what do I have to do? What do I have to do to be saved? Well, here's what happens. Paul ends up preaching Jesus to him. He ends up saying, you gotta come to my house. They leave the jail Go to the jailer's house. The jailer and all of his family 
believe and are baptized. And then, before the sun comes up in the morning, the jailer rushes them all back to jail and locks them up again because he'd be in some serious trouble if anybody knew that they had been out. Well, overnight, the magistrates have some second thoughts. They're like, really, we could, as magistrates, we could get in trouble for beating them and jailing them without any formal proof or without any sort of due process. We could get in trouble. They didn't know they were Romans, but they had heard at some point overnight that they were Roman citizens, and they started to get scared. And so what they did is they said, let's go back, let's run back in there, let's just open the gate and just let them go. So that's what they do. They go back, they throw open the cells, and they said, hey, we didn't realize you guys were Roman citizens, our bad, you guys can go. No hard feelings, right? What would the rest of us do? The rest of us would be like, I'm gone. But they have to literally beg them to get up and leave. Okay? Beg them. Paul's like, no, we have rights. You come, you come yourself and you apologize to us. And he's sticking to his guns. Again, that's Paul being Paul. It's like, I'm confident. I know what my rights are and I know you shouldn't have done that. So I'm just going to kind of make you spin a little bit. So that's what he does. Finally, they, they come to an agreement. They leave and they leave Philippi and they go to Thessalonica. Okay, Thessalonica is their next stop. If you show up on the map, well, that is a terrible map. Anyway, it's farther to the left. It's almost to the farthest left that you can get up there. Still up in Macedonia, but they're up that direction. That's where they go. When they get there, here's what happens, Acts 17, 1 to 2. Now, when they had traveled through Amphipolis and Apollonia, that's just the regions on the way, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of Jews. And according to Paul's custom, he went to them. And for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the scriptures. So he spends three full weeks reasoning with them in the synagogue from the scriptures, trying to, trying to get them to come to an understanding of who Jesus is. And it's working. It's working. Many are converting. Okay? Not all of them. Scripture doesn't say all of them, but somewhere. Things are going really well for them there. By now, you should know that when I say things are going really well, what happens next? Acts 17, verse 5. But the Jews, becoming jealous and taking along some wicked men from the marketplace. In other words, they go to the marketplace and just grab some thugs from the marketplace. Formed a mob and set the city in an uproar, attacking the house of Jason. This is just a poor, innocent guy. Jason is, is nobody, but they think they've been staying with Jason. They attacked Jason's house, and they were seeking to bring them out to the people. In other words, they want to grab them, drag them out into the street, and they're starting this mob, and they want to just have the thugs beat them or kill them. That's what their plan is. But Paul and Silas, they kind of get wind of what's going on in this plot, and they actually sort of slip out in the middle of the night, and they go to the next town, which is called Berea. If you've heard of the Bereans, okay, this is where they are. Just a little bit farther down south there. You can read that, right? No. A little bit farther down south, they go down to Berea. Now, Scripture says this about the Bereans. Um, we've got this on screen. Acts 17, 11 to 12. Now, these were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica, for they received the word with great eagerness, examining the Scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. In other words, they didn't just take Paul's word for it. They really examined the scriptures. Therefore, many of them believed, along with a number of prominent 
Greek women and men. That's a great thing. Again, Bereans known, historically they were known as open thinkers, deep thinkers, but open. You, you give us your argument, we'll think about it, we will consider it. Not just we want to debate to debate, but we'll really consider this thing. And that's what the word says that the Bereans are. They're noble, noble character and they examine, they dig into the scriptures to see if what Paul is saying is true. And many of them are converting. Many of them are coming to know Jesus. And things are going really well for them there. But, very next verse, Acts 17, 13. I'll read this to you. You know what's coming. But when the Jews of Thessalonica found out that the word of God had been proclaimed by Paul in Berea also, they came there as well, agitating and stirring up the crowds. They just can't leave them alone. It's not enough that they leave their city. We want to make sure you don't infect the next city with your crazy ideas too. So Paul, his disciples are just like, Paul, you need, you need to get out of here. This is not a good place for you. So they urge him to leave. He leaves and he goes to Athens. So he goes to Athens and the rest of the disciples, they kind of stay behind to sort of smooth things out there. Okay, the Bereans are good people. The Bereans are going to be on their side. But it's just the Jews from Thessalonica that, that are having a problem with them and are causing trouble. So the disciples, they stay behind to kind of smooth things over while Paul heads on and goes down to Athens. So Acts 17, 16 to 17 says, Now Paul has arrived in Athens. Now while he was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was being provoked within him as he was observing the city full of idols. So he was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be present. Yeah, that's the end of it. So he's going in there. Again, he's preaching to them every single day. This place, Athens, Athens, Greece, if anybody's ever been there, you know about it from high school history. It's as polytheistic as you can get. They have gods and temples and things all over the place. They're extremely, extremely polytheistic. But what else is Athens known for, at least in that time? What else were they known for? Philosophers, right? It's supposed to be the birthplace of philosophy. So um, there's, a, there's a strain of, of philosophy called Stoicism. Uh, there's another one called, um, it's gone on my head, uh, Epicureans. Epicureanism and Stoicism. Two big trains of philosophy that are being promoted there. But more than that even, they just love to debate. That's their thing. They just love to debate. I'll hear your side, but I have no intention of of believing what you're saying. I'm just listening carefully to what you're saying so that I can prepare my rebuttal. How many of us listen like that? I know I do sometimes. I can't even wait until Gabe's finished talking before I go, "Eh, but... (laughs) right don't say it and things are going okay they're they're debating with him and it's kind of a civil debate until paul starts talking about the resurrection of jesus and the problem is is that epicureans and stoics they don't believe in the resurrection okay they believe pretty much live your life here and you just take what comes your way and this is what happens epicureans are like hey take all the comfort and all the all the wine dance and song that you can and just be comfortable, because when you die, you just go to dust. And the Stoics are like, we don't really care what happens next. You just got to suck it up and take it, whatever it is. 
That's kind of in a nutshell. If you're into philosophy, I apologize for butchering that. But in a nutshell, that's kind of what they're talking about. So Paul starts talking about this. And if you've ever heard the sermon on Mars Hill, if you heard of Mars Hill, that's what this is. He's there and he's delivering this sermon to the philosophers and to those who are gathered around. And there are a few who convert, but for the most part, again, they're not interested in conversion. They just want to argue. So Paul sees this. He sees that it's kind of fruitless. Only a few believe, the word says. So Paul just goes, I'm moving on. He moves on. He heads to Corinth. Corinth is the next stop on the map. Okay, Acts 18, 1 to 4. I'm going to read this one to you. After these things, he left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, that's in Italy, having recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla. Because Claudius had commanded all the Jews leave Rome. Emperor Claudius made a decree that all the Jews have to physically leave Rome. Okay, and that's why Priscilla and Aquila found themselves here in Corinth. That's where they are. He came to them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them, and they were working for, by trade, they were tent makers. Remember, Paul was a tent maker by trade. His family were tent makers. Priscilla and Aquila are tent makers. And he stays with them. They must have just hit it off. And he was reasoning in the synagogue every Sabbath and trying to persuade the, G- the Greeks and Jews. So a couple things we can learn from this. Number one, this is where he meets Priscilla and Aquila, who end up traveling with him and actually becoming uh, some really um, important disciples later. But Paul wasn't uh, um, independently wealthy. He wasn't supported monetarily with big tons of money from the Jerusalem church. He did this and raised money as he went. So when he got to Corinth, he actually must have been running a little bit low. And he said, hey, you guys are tent makers. I'm a tent maker. Let's get together and let's, let's do some work. So he either went to work for them or worked alongside them. And he actually earned some money to keep himself going. Kind of had to do that. We always picture these apostles as just being, you know, they're, just money would show up in their bag the following day. But they, either people had to support them as they went along. Or they had to work as they went along. That's what happened. And if they ran out of money, they stopped where they were until they worked enough or made enough or got support to where they could move on. That's an important concept even today. So Paul is there. They're doing, at this point, Silas and Timothy, remember they stayed behind and they kind of catch up with him at this point. So they're all together there. But here's the problem. The Corinthians really aren't receptive to the word at all. The Corinthians are a hard sell because they are a port city and they're a port city between kind of a crossroads and all kinds of people travel through there. And scripture tells us this, that it was so bad, this town was so into fleshly and sinful things that every night, I don't know if this is literal or not, but every night a thousand prostitutes would head in from the outside regions to downtown Corinth and do their business there. A thousand every single night. Now, whether that number is literal or not, I don't know, but it's illustrating. It was bad. Things were bad there. And they were so into that kind of lifestyle, they really weren't interested in hearing what Paul had to say. So it's a difficult place for them. And he's preaching the word, and some are listening to it, but it's just a hard go. And finally, Paul has had enough. Acts 18.6, Paul blows up at him. But when they resisted and blasphemed, he shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am clean. From now on, I'll go to the Gentiles. So Paul's like, Paul wants to wash his hands of them. Shook out his garments. You know, means I'm, I'm done. You guys, I'm done with you if you don't want to receive this. But here's the problem. The Lord had other plans. 
Lord's got other plans, and his plans are the better plans. Acts 18, 9 to 11. And the Lord said to Paul in the night by a vision. Okay, he's still there, getting ready to leave, but he's saying, I, I'm done with you guys. The Lord says to Paul by night in a vision, do not be afraid any longer, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no man will attack you in order to harm you, for I have many people in this city. The Lord's telling Paul, it's okay. I've got this. You don't see the friends, but they're there. I've got them. He's okay. And then verse 11 says, and he settled there a year and six months. Paul ends up staying 18 months, year and a half beyond when he said, I'm done with you, I'm leaving. Paul welcomes that kind of redirection. He asks for it and receives it over and over again. And the most important thing is he's faithful to it. He says, okay, I'll go. So he does that. But <clears throat> what happens then is after 18 months of preaching, the Jews get tired of him. Jews get tired of him converting people and going around and preaching his thing. So they decide they're going to drag him into court again. Now, what they do literally is they just go snag him off the street and drag him in to the proconsul, the Roman proconsul here who's like the governor. They drag him in there. But the proconsul sees this as a dispute just between like a sect of Judaism. See, back then, Judaism was considered just to be an offshoot. Uh, Christianity was considered to be an offshoot of Judaism, not its whole different thing. And so the Romans just said, hey, you guys are squabbling among yourselves. I don't want to be involved in this. So that's what he tells them. He goes, I'm not going to be involved in this. So what happens is the Jews revolt. But they can't do anything to Paul because Paul's right there in front of the proconsul, and he's the one saying, set him free. He's not doing anything. But they go outside, and they grab all of Paul's acquaintances, all of his traveling companions, and they beat them to a pulp. So Paul gets out. Paul gets out, and his first response, being Paul, again, the Lord using who we are to do his work, not in spite of, but because of. Paul says, where are they? You show me where they are, those guys that beat you up, I'm going to go take care of them. I wasn't there, but I imagine it's something like that because they have to restrain him and say, just, just leave. Just leave before they turn on you. So they encourage Paul to like, stay. It's okay. It's okay. Stay out of this. We got it. Go ahead and leave. And so he leaves. So that's what happens. Really, Paul, long story short, Paul sails back. Uh, he goes, travels back to Ephesus and then home to Antioch, okay? And that's kind of where this section ends. That's the end of his second journey. A lot happened there. A lot happened there. But what's the theme that we look at over and over again? The Lord used Paul because of who he was, right? He filled in the gaps. He gave his Holy Spirit so that Paul had everything he needed to do what he was called to do. But more importantly, Paul was already pretty much who he needed to be to do what God was calling him to do. God called him because of who he was, not in spite of. And so we see times when Paul's personality flares up and he handles things maybe different than, certainly different than Jesus would have, or that Peter or Barnabas or anybody else would have. Paul handles things in his own unique way. He is steadfastly zealous for Jesus and he won't let anything stand in his way. Next on his third journey, he talks over and over again, hey, if they want to kill me, they can kill me, but I'm not going to back down a bit. This is who Paul is. God's using him because 
of who he is. So when we look at this collection of kind of crazy, mismatched sort of events that happened, here's what you need to know. A couple things to take away from this. One, nothing is a surprise to God. Nothing that happens to us is a surprise to God that all of a sudden he's like, what are we going to do about this? He knows. That's why he sent you into that situation. You have a purpose in him, and it's not anything to fear. Paul later on, in fact, right after Acts, the very next book is Romans. And Paul writes this, Romans 8, 28, For we know that God causes all things to work together for the good of those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. And Paul had just lived that. He was called according to God's purpose, and he walked in that. And despite everything that came his way, he got to see firsthand that God used it for incredible good, beyond what Paul himself could have ever done. This is what God does. Nothing is a surprise to him. The second thing, if he sends you into a situation, it's because you can handle it. It's because you can handle it. God chooses you not despite of who you are, but because of it. Remember that. So the next time you're feeling that you're not a part of God's plan because you're not equipped, you're not a part of God's plan, he can't use you because you haven't been a Christian long enough, or you, you backslid and you're away from church for, long, for too long now, God can't use me until I get myself back into shape. Okay? Next time you think that, that's a lie. Everything that happens to you Everything in your past, it's nothing to mourn, it's nothing to lament, it's nothing to be ashamed of, it's equipping that God uses. The enemy throws those things at you, God didn't cause bad things to happen to you, but he says, okay, this happened, I'm going to use that. Watch how that now equips him to do something that no one else could do. It's those experiences that we have in our lives that equip us in a unique way to be used by God that only you can do. That's what you need to remember. So worship team, you guys can go ahead and come on up. Remember this. Church, if you're feeling unqualified or unworthy, it's a lie. It's a lie that comes straight from the pit of hell that the enemy wants you to believe. Remember, he's smart. He won't come at you with these full frontal attacks that you can clearly see as the enemy. It's going to sound just like your voice. It's going to sound just like all those condemning voices that you heard as you were growing up. Those condemning voices of judgmental neighbors or family members. Or sad to say, a, a church member who would be next to you. Something you overheard. You're not qualified to do that. Why are you there? That is a lie. God is the one who calls us. God who is the one who qualifies us. And if he hasn't already equipped us through our life experience of everything that we need, he will give it to us. Through him, we are everything that we will ever need to be to accomplish what he calls us to do. We talked a lot about the Holy Spirit and the gifts of the Spirit. In our bedrock class, we talked about all these different abilities that the Spirit would give you. And the Holy Spirit gave Paul clearly different abilities at different times to accomplish the things that he was calling him to do. But here's what you need to know, church. The most important ability of all is availability. Because you can have all the gifts and all the experiences in the world, and if you say no to being redirected by God, you're going to miss what he has for you. 
If Paul would have said, no, I'm going north into Asia because that's what my plan was, how much would he have missed out on? God probably would have redirected and used somehow, but he would have missed what God had for him. And through that, we see the legacy that Paul left. I want to never be accused of missing what God had for me because I had some notion of where I needed to be. We need to be available to the calling of the Holy Spirit because he'll do the rest. That's all we have to do is be available. Amen, church? So as we go into communion, remember we've got juice and bread and crackers at the crosses. We'll have wine and bread and juice up here. We'll love to serve you. Remember at the beginning I said, let's pray and ask God what we need to know, what we need to hear, how we should respond to a message like this. I want you to take the first couple minutes here and just ask the Lord, what do you want me to do with this? Where maybe have I been saying no or making myself unavailable because of something I'm believing? And what do you want me to know about that, Lord? Let's just take this time to ask him and respond. And when you're ready, we have communion up here. We can thank Jesus because of what he did. We have this kind of access to the Father. But let's respond like that. And when you're ready, you can feel free to move around. Thank you, church. On a hill far away Stood an old rugged cross The emblem of suffering and shame And I love that old cross Where the dearest and best For a world of lost sinners was so I'll cherish the old rugged cross Till my trophies at last I lay down I will cling to the old rugged cross And exchange it someday
Amen. Let's put this a shout up. Praise to the Lord. Amen. We have a holy hoedown. Amen. All right. We're glad you guys are with us tonight.